The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul's writing to a young pastor. And he's, this is the second letter that he's written to him, and he's giving instruction and encouragement and direction for this young pastor who's leading a church at a day and time when church hasn't exactly been around for a while. Like, it's easy for us to forget, like, these guys don't really know for sure how to do this. Many of us, we've grown up in church. Churches have been around in our lives for a really long time. And so even if no one coached you on how to do church, you've got experiences, you've seen traditions. We have some sort of idea how our culture, at least, interprets what church looks like. But at this point in time, Jesus came, everyone was following him, he raises up these disciples to take this movement out to the world, and then he just leaves. And he left no blueprint. He left no, here's how you do this, and here's what to do, and here's what not to do. He didn't really leave a lot of that, at least none that we have written. I'm sure he taught his men much, much more than just what we read, but there's not a lot of like, you can't go to how to lead a church for dummies, like there was no place for Timothy to go for that kind of instruction. And, and so Paul is writing these letters to Timothy, this young man, and he's saying, hey, here's what this looks like to pastor God's people. Here's how you raise up leaders. Here's what it looks like when opposition comes. Here's all these different kind of things that he's teaching him about church. And, and as he's doing that, he teaches him a lot about what to do with the word of God, with the scriptures that they've been given. And in chapter three, he says to Timothy, understand this. Verse 1, that in the last days there'll come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having an appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, and so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupt in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconia and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord has rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And then he goes on after that in verse 1 of chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, 
Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. But as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. There is a lot going on in there. There's a lot of things he's covering from the suffering that people are going to endure, from other teachers, from false teachers, all these kind of things. But if you notice throughout the whole thing, there's this kind of theme that's going through everything that Paul's saying. He roots everything he wants Timothy to do in one place, and he actually, by default, is rooting everything everyone else wants to do in the opposite place. He's saying to them, listen, you have followed my teaching and my example. And then he says, hey, all scriptures are profitable. And he goes through and talks about what they may be used for. And then he says, and you're to continue to go on and teach the word. So this idea of the scriptures, the word that has been given Timothy, has become kind of a bedrock foundation for him that Paul's saying, listen, the word defines how you live. The word defines how you grow. And the word is what you teach. It's not just for you, Timothy. It's not just like it's some pastoral owner's manual and what a pastor's to look like, but it's the thing that you are to take in yourself that changes who you are, and then you really regurgitate that same thing out, and you are teaching the word constantly to others. And then those who are opposed to that, he actually frames that out to say, those are the people that don't want to hear the truth. And there's different forms. There's some who he says they deny godliness. There's others who they're just controlled completely by their own passions. And they're going to be opposed to you and to anything else because what they're being controlled by is their own desires and their own wants, especially not the word of God. But then he goes into a form of those who will even hear the word. And I don't know if I like that part. I think I'll go find a teacher who actually teaches me some of the things I actually am looking for. And so there's this idea of people who are even taking in a false type of teaching that's based on things that make them feel good. Based on things that, that maybe encourage them in ways and maybe avoid things like conviction or maybe makes promises to them of things that they really want to hear. We've talked about a lot of those things with regards to the prosperity theology that's alive and well today in some of the biggest churches in our country. Where people, instead of teaching the truth of God's word, will say things regularly just to make people feel good. Just to say the things that, as Paul would say here, tickle your ears. And they grow big crowds. Because there's a lot of people that want to hear those sorts of things. But Paul's saying to Timothy, you're going to be different than everybody else that's out there. And he says to Timothy, you are different. Because number one, you have followed my example. And Paul has built his own life on the truth. In other writings that Paul makes, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul is a fervent teacher of the same scriptures. And so he's wanting Timothy to do what he himself has done, to allow those scriptures to change his own life and then to be a faithful preacher of the same scriptures, whether people like it or not. And Paul constantly is dealing with difficulty because of the truth that he's teaching. In jail, persecuted, you name it, he's been through it all because he's building on the truth. And now he's telling this young guy, yeah, okay, so Timothy, you're following in my example. And I know that you've seen what's happened to me. You've seen how standing on this truth and preaching this truth, um, it's not an ear tickler, Timothy. The things that we teach and the things that we stand on, 
uh, doesn't buy me a palace on the hill, it oftentimes buys me a jail cell. You've seen how standing for this truth is not popular out there, and there are those who are opposed to it, and it causes me persecution. It causes me all of these things, but the goal, Timothy, is not our comfort here. The goal is that we be found faithful to our king and to the coming kingdom so that when our king returns, our reward lies there. We talked about that a whole lot last week, for example. So here Paul's teaching about the scriptures, and he says this in verse 16, if we can bear down. Actually, let's start in 15. He talks about, from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. And then he says, all scripture is what? Breathed out by God. That's a massive claim. Now, remember his context. He's in a highly spiritualized context in many places. At least that's where Paul came from. He came out of this Jewish world where the scriptures were sacred. They were given by God, the very law written by the very finger of God on Moses' tablets. And so to go into that Jewish culture and say, I've got these words here that have been breathed out by God, that's no small thing to say. And what Timothy is, or what Paul is saying to Timothy is, listen, the things I'm teaching you and the things I'm encouraging you to follow are not my words. This is not Paul's idea for what the church should look like. This is the very words of God himself, the creator of heaven and earth, and the ultimate authority in all of the universe has written these things for our very own purposes. So even in that right there, it's a massive claim. He's saying, if we can just say it in our own words, this isn't just some book. Like I think sometimes we take that for granted. Maybe it's a little bit of the familiarity that we have Bibles around us all the time, and in many places they don't, and in most places in history they didn't, and, and this becomes really common to us. All of us have Bibles. We're aware of Bibles. You got a ho- I mean, there's still Bibles in hotel rooms all over the place. They're just sort of everywhere in a lot of ways, but we forget this is the very Word of God, the same voice that spoke things into existence spoke this. And there is a massive claim of authority to that. And then he says that all scripture is breathed by God and is profitable for teaching. He's saying, hey, you need to teach all of this. And and it's for reproof. You need to listen to this. It's for correction. You need to obey this. It's for training in righteousness. You need to follow this. He's saying, Timothy, look, your whole life and your whole ministry is really going to be built on the words that are right here, and all of them are trustworthy, and all of them will provide the foundation and the direction for everything that, not only what you're to do as a minister, but who you're to become as a Christian. That's a giant claim about this book. In in other words, he better be right, right? Because if he's wrong, what are we doing here? Like, what's the point of this? We could study some John Grisham books instead or something, right? Huge claim. Now look at what's said in 2 Peter, if you turn just a little bit to the right. Peter here is doing the same thing, writing to churches who face opposition and who face difficulty and who have been taught to build their ministry and their lives upon the very word of God. And beginning in verse 16, I'm sorry, chapter 1 of 16, I should probably tell you that part, right? (laughs) 
verse 16, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And then he says this. Now, just imagine that. These guys have heard this. They've heard the story of Jesus' baptism when the voice came from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. They've heard the stories of how a few of the apostles were with Jesus on top of the mountain at the Mount of Transfiguration when that miracle happens where the flesh that has enclosed and hidden the glory of the true God from the rest of the world for those 30-some years in that moment broke away and he became, as the scriptures say, as lightning. His deity bursting forth from his flesh and proving him to be the God of the universe. Don't be dulled by who Jesus is because you've heard it so many times. Remember, the God of the universe who said, let there be light. This God, standing on the mountain, begins to shine like lightning. They've heard these stories. And they're hearing it from someone who saw it firsthand. He's reminding them, like, look, this isn't just things that got passed down, and then they got passed down again, and then they got passed down again. This isn't the operator game where it started, like, me and Jesus were on the mountain with a flashlight, and ended, Jesus became light. It's not that. He's like, I was there. I saw it myself. But then he says something really specific about the scriptures. Look what he says. And we have something even more sure. The prophetic word, to which you do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I think what he's saying there, It's like you've heard stories about how I, eyewitness, got to see Jesus become light. But you have an even more sure word of prophecy right here that will become your light to guide you through every situation in life. He's saying the same thing that Timothy is being told by Paul. This is what you're going to build your life on. This is what you're going to build your ministry on. This is what you're going to build the church on. This is what's going to guide you in who you become. This is what's going to guide you when you go through difficulty and persecution, which these people would go through. He's saying, this is the more sure word. He's saying, you have more help in these written scriptures than you do hearing me tell about what I saw on the mountaintop. These guys put a massive weight on the scriptures. You go, okay, Jeff, I get it. Like, we get it. It's the Bible. It's important. I get it. But do you? Like, do we get so familiar sometimes that we forget? Because I think maybe we do, because it's shocking to me how easily so many people will just play with this then. Like, if this is the Word of God, how do you play with that? Because if the voice came down from heaven now, in the same way that the voice came down from heaven when Jesus was baptized. If the voice came down from heaven now, in the same way the voice came down from heaven when Jesus was glorified on top of the mountain. If we actually heard the very voice of God now, how many people would go, well, hold on. And yet people do. 
Because I think there becomes a disconnect between the written word of God and if there was some miraculous voice of God, and there shouldn't be. Because this is the word of God. And in fact, Jesus himself would make a different claim. In John chapter 17, he said this, sanctify them by your truth. In other words, what Jesus is saying as he's praying to God for us, he says, change them, grow them, mold them into your likeness. That's what that means. Sanctify them, set them apart from everyone else, from all of those people who live according to their own flesh, who live according to other ideas or doctrines or teachings that they like better. Sanctify the believers in me. Sanctify my people by, the, by your word, by the truth. And then he goes on to say, your word is truth. And he's very careful the way that it's said. It's not just like your word is true as is it's true along with other things such as the statement that the sun is out today, for example. No, he actually says your word is truth as if this becomes the standard for what even truth is, the ultimate truth. In other words, this, here's what I'm getting at. Christianity, if you're holding to actual biblical teachings, puts an, a level of importance on the word of God that cannot be overstated. A massive, huge, huge importance on the Word of God that cannot be overstated. So it's an important myth for us to look at when we hear things like the Bible is unreliable. Now, there's different groups that would say that. Some of the people who would say that this book, this Bible, is unreliable are those outside of the church, like those that Paul was speaking to Timothy at in the beginning, those who they have no desire to follow God, they're opposed to God, they're opposed to Christianity, and literally right now there's millions of them all around that would look at what we're doing right now and they're like, you guys are a bunch of fools. Like you're really gathering together on a beautiful Sunday morning when you should be out with your dads camping or hiking or doing whatever it is that you do. You're gathered together to read a bunch of fables and study them like they're true. Like let's study Snow White next week. You guys are wasting your time is what they would say. But there's other people even within the church that would say the same kind of thing. They would say well, the Bible's not totally reliable. They'd say, I mean, look, there's, there's really good stuff in there, but, you know, we don't, we don't even know that this is the same Bible that the people who were talking, like, when Paul's writing to Timothy about the Scriptures, we don't even know that that's the same thing. And you guys know how it works. Someone tells someone something, and way down the line later, you hear something else in response, and it's not even the same thing that got said before, and facts get twisted, and people are fallen. Even when they have the best intentions, they make mistakes. And so you're talking about thousands of years ago to now. How do we even know? that this is even what it is. And so we have to be careful with what's in here because, man, you just get too worked up about things that might not even really be true. We have to, like, use some common sense here. I mean, this is a really good, helpful book, but you can't go approaching this like every word of this is God's very spoken word. That's just foolish, right? And there's people that would say that. And that's how we have so many different um, sects, even within uh, the element of Christianity, those who would maybe disagree with other portions of the Bible. So, for example, you'll have some that would say, no, the Bible here talks about what marriage is defined by, and the Bible defines marriage as between man and woman, and one man and one woman, and all that. So that's what we believe. And then other people today, on a more liberal end, and I don't mean that politically, I just mean in how they handle interpretation of the Bible, would say, no, but look, 
that was a cultural thing back then. That's not really what it means right now. God just wants us to be committed to one another. And so you start sort of playing with some of the scriptures and going, no, this part's true, but this part's not. And then they'll even try to use other parts of the Bible against each other. Like, you know, the Old Testament also says you shouldn't eat crab either. And so there becomes all these sorts of arguments about is the Bible reliable or not. And honestly, I think that's even more confusing. I mean, it makes more sense to me, the person that would say, the Bible's just stupid. What are you guys doing here? That makes more sense to me than the person who would say, let's gather together and spend all our Sunday mornings worshiping and then studying something that we're not really sure what's true and what's not. Like, then what's the point? And how do you even decide? So it becomes a really confusing issue for many, many people. And this particular myth, the reliability or the, the myth that the Bible is not reliable, is one that has roots, like I'm saying, within the church and outside the church. And Heritage here has some very strong beliefs uh, re- regarding the Bible as well. So this is worth our time to understand even as we move forward. Because in case you haven't noticed yet, even in the Mythbusters series, in every particular case that we go to, where is it that we're going to prove or disprove whatever myth we're talking about the bible so if this is our standard for all the other myths then we should probably make sure we know what we're talking about amen so this is what we where we're doing so so what do we say then about the bible now I don't want this to turn into just some sort of apologetics teaching apologetics means it's like defense of the faith so we could, do, we could do a full-blown Josh McDowell evidence that demands a verdict. You uh, 80s Christians know exactly what I'm talking about. Like we could do a, a, a full breakdown. And I'm going to do some of that stuff, but I don't want you to get bogged down in that because, well, you'll see in just a minute. So hang with me for a few minutes as we talk about some of the uniqueness of the Bible that's inarguable. But then we're going we're gonna to move out of the realm of, if you will, the intellect and talk about some heart stuff. Does that make sense? Everybody say amen. So here's what we're going to do. Let's talk first of all about what we know about the Bible. And I want to just bring some attention to you guys about some of the unique things about the Bible that are not unique of other books that are out there. Things that make this, at the very least, incredibly special and an incredibly important document, if you will. Okay? So here's some things. And if you're, not t- if you're taking notes, you can write these down. If you're not taking notes, you should start taking notes. So write these down. What do we know? What's unique about the Bible? Number one is the Bible is unique in its continuity. The Bible is very unique in its continuity. And um, it's the only book in history that fulfills several really important and really remarkable categories. And, and it's just crazy. So here's what they are. The Bible is the, was written. Here's what makes the Bible unique. It was written over a 1,500-year span. So it didn't just sit down one day and over a period of a few months, a bunch of the disciples got together and made something up and came up with it. This is historically inarguable. The Bible was written, its, its first words were penned over 1,500 years before its last words. Think about that, guys. 1,500 years between word one and word two. So think about that in terms of the operator game. Do you guys all know what I mean when I say the operator game? When I was a kid, we even did this in church as talking about proof of the Bible. Everybody would sit in a circle, and the first person would make up some, some I don't know, something like, uh, today is Saturday, and they'd whisper it in the ears of the next kid. And the next kid would be, 
today is Saturday. And they whisper it and they go around, today is Saturday. Jeff has cooties. What? You're like, how did you even get to? And it was always because of some smart aleck kid like me that's in the middle that just completely changed everything, right? But, but, but the idea is, listen, it, 1,500 years. Can you imagine the changes that would be possible in the operator game played over 1,500 years? And yet, in its 1,500 years, there's continuities we'll see in just a minute. It's the only book written by over 40-plus authors from every walk of life. So think about this. It, it was written by Moses, who was a political leader trained in Egypt. It was written by David, who was a king, poet, musician, and warrior, and shepherd. That's a weird combination just right there. It's written by Amos, who was a herdsman. Joshua, who was a military general. Nehemiah, a cupbearer to a pagan king. Daniel was a prime minister. Solomon was a king and a philosopher. Luke, a physician and historian. Peter, a fisherman. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a rabbi and former murderer of Christians. And Mark, Peter's secretary and assistant. You've got people from every possible area or walk of life scattered over 1,500 years. It's the only book that was written in different places physically. It was written in a wilderness. Parts of it were written in a dungeon. Parts of it on a hillside. Parts of it in a palace. Some of it inside prison walls. Some on the road while traveling. Some in exile on a desert island. Like, that's just weird in general, right? Like, John Grisham didn't do any of that. It's the only one written in different times. It's written during times of war written during times of peace, during times of devastation, prosperity, sacrifice, victory, defeat, and on and on and on. It's the only book written during different moods. The Bible covers from the heights of joy to the depths of sorrow and despair, from times of certainty and conviction to days of confusion and doubt. The book was written on three continents, which today is less of a big deal than it was then, but remember, no Delta Airlines, So it was written in Africa, it was written in Asia, and it was written in Europe. The Bible was written in three different languages. It was written in Hebrew, it was written in Greek, and it was written in Aramaic. And then the Bible is also the only one written in a wide variety of of literary styles. The, The Bible includes poetry, historical narrative, song, romance, didactic treatise, personal correspondence, memoirs, satire, biography, autobiography, law, prophecy, parable, and allegory. Like, imagine a book that you're reading through and just, it's like a historical novel and suddenly there's love songs in the middle of it. Like, that's just odd. And then also, it was written addressing hundreds of even controversial subjects from divorce, homosexuality, immorality, adultery, parenting, character develop, disobedience to authority, obedience to authority, etc., etc., etc. Tons of different topics. And you go, okay, well, what's the big deal? Because in spite of the fact that it was written over a 1,500-year span by 40 different people on three different continents in three different languages in all sorts of areas and walks of life, it tells the same story. From beginning to end, the continuity that exists. There's no operator game going on here. There's no, it starts off talking about one thing and ends somewhere else. It's the story that goes from the garden to the city. 
It's the story that goes from the fall to redemption. The Bible tells one continuing story. The paradise lost of Genesis becomes the paradise regained of Revelation. Over that incredible period of time and all of that diversity of situations and people, it is one continuous story. Also, and importantly, among all the countless people in the Bible, the Bible is really the the only one that teaches us the true and story of one particular character. So think of this. Over 1,500 years written by all those different people in all those different places, the story, the main character, the story always points to this one main character, even the parts written thousands of years before he appeared. The person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament law provides the foundation for Christ and the need for Christ. The historical books show the preparation for Christ. The poetic books show uh, they aspire to Christ. The prophecies display an expectation of Christ. The gospels record the manifestation of Christ. Acts tells of the propagation of Christ. The epistles give us the interpretation of Christ. And in Revelation is the consummation of all things and the return of Christ. It's one story. Despite all of that, that's a, guys, that's a miracle that from cover to cover and through all those diverse situations, locations, situations, and people, one story, the story of Jesus Christ and his saving of humanity. That's pretty remarkable. What else is unique about the Bible? Well, number two, the Bible's unique in its survival. Because over those 1,500 years and then all the years since then, like for all that to exist, it's just unique that it's made it this way. And here's what I mean by this. Compared to other ancient writings, the Bible is not just on top of the list in terms of its reliability of actual text. It's not even close. This is one where if you want to go study on your own, there's tons of things online. There's books that are written out there all about this. But it's remarkable the accuracy by which we have of the scriptures. When, when, I, when I was going into college, I went through some seasons of questions because I had these, uh, these professors in my life that seemed really, really smart. and They were always asking all these questions and they weren't things I was really prepared for as a kid. And they started talking about, yeah, but you don't know if the Bible you're reading now is the same Bible from before. And it, it, things change over time. We all know that. Listen to this. Let's consider, for example, just Shakespeare's writings alone. Shakespeare's writings have been around over 200 years. Not too far over 200 years, but just imagine that. Shakespeare's writers have been around over 200 years. There's 37 Shakespeare plays. You didn't know this, and they don't talk about this at Shakespeare Festival because they don't want to ruin their plays before you watch it. But every single Shakespeare play there is faces arguments about, is that what he actually wrote? And in many cases, the arguments among the actual writings or maybe conflicting manuscripts that are being looked at even affect the meanings or the interpretations or the outcomes of some of the plays. And that's less than 300 years old. Every single play is argued about. The Bible, however, which has been around now for more than 18 centuries, is far more accurate. Any disagreements between manuscripts among scholars that are still going on today have no impact on the actual outcome or the meaning of the passages. The the things that people argue over are like spelling errors or punctuation that interpreters added later. Like it has survived the test of time on a level that even Shakespeare's writings cannot compete with. And it's not for lack of attack. 
Um, liberal, liberal theology actually in the 30s and 40s was kind of the dominant version of Christianity to the day. Many of you guys have read, it was a really popular book a couple of years ago, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's autobiography written by Eric, uh, is it Metaxas, Metataxas, something like that? In it, he tells the stories of how Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany had come over to the United States in like the 20s, 30s, 40s, somewhere in that window. And he went into New York and he was visiting different churches as he was there. And he writes unapologetically about how disgusted he was with churches in America when he came. He, and, and his complaint was, they're not teaching the Bible. They teach like happy messages, or they teach allegory, meaning they'll read a story out of the Bible, and they'll try to explain some sort of spiritualized meaning out of it. But he was like, there's just, no one actually holds to the, to the Word of God. And he struggled with the liberalism by which people approach the Scriptures. But there was something unique that actually happened around that time, too. Down in southern Israel, down near uh, the Dead Sea, they found some caves, uh, if you've been with us to Israel when we went last time, or hopefully that we can go next year, um, there's these places we'll pull over where you can see them. You can't hike up to them anymore. But they found these, these caves down there, and some kid along the way, literally, it was like some kid chucking rocks up into the cave, and he heard glass shatter just when he threw a rock in there. and was like, oh, what's that? Climbs up into the cave and finds these, these clay vases that had scrolls inside them. And when they pulled them out, they brought them to different scholars, many of which were secular scholars, not Christian scholars. Remember, it's Israel. You know, it's not exactly like they're going to go to First Baptist Church of Jerusalem, right? So they're going to different places with that, right? And, uh, and they brought these scrolls out. And what they found was it was, I mean, and by, by miles, it was the oldest actual copies of many segments of Scripture, including the entire book of Isaiah. And, and people were so excited that they found them because they were like, finally, we are going to be able to prove without a doubt that the Bible's not accurate because there's no chance that these words are going to match up. So they sent the words all over the place. They made copies. They did all their research. You know what they found? It was a 99.997% exact match to the book of Isaiah that you read right now, and the only discrepancies were spelling errors. And guys, that has happened over and over, and over, and over. People will argue meaning, but there is zero evidence anywhere historically to argue the words that we have here. The Bible has survived in a way that's stunning. And I love this. Norman Geisler tells this story. He said, the noted French infidel Voltaire, who died in 1778, he declared that in 100 years from this time, that means in 1778, he said, in 100 years, Christianity, be, Christianity will be swept from existence and passed off into history. He said that 1778, in other words, by 1878, Christianity will be gone. We won't even think about it when we talk about history anymore. 50 years after his death, so just 50 years later, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and used his own printing presses in his basement to print stacks of the Bible that got sent all over the world. Don't mock God. He's, he's going, oh, that was foolish. 
That's why Mark 13, 31, Jesus himself said, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall never pass away. The Bible is unique in its, tra- in its uh, survival. I gotta hurry. The Bible is unique in its translation. Uh, I, I believe they're, they're either right there or close to being able to claim that the Bible has been translated into every known language or people group anywhere in the world. It's no, no other book has even attempted to do anything like that, much less come close to it. The Bible is unique in its circulation. The Bible is by far the best-selling book of all time. This is crazy to me. I still, I was trying to do the math because I was like, this doesn't even make sense like it's possible, and I was trying to research it, so I'm assuming it's true. It was on the internet, right? But anyway, but this is, listen, right now, Bible sales stand at five billion, but here's what's crazy. Um, They hit their first billion in 2005. Second billion only took till 2015, which means six more billion since 2015, which doesn't even make sense to me practically, but that's what they say. By far the best-selling book of all time. Josh McDowell actually says this. This is for all you 80s evidence that demands a verdict people. I'll give you a Josh McDowell quote because you have to when you talk about Bible, right? He said this, if you lined up all the people who have ever received Bibles or scripture selections in the last year alone and handed a Bible to one of them every five seconds, it would take more than 92 years to do what the world's united Bible societies have accomplished in the last year alone. 92 years if you just handed one Bible to one person, just one after the other like that. So it's unique in its circulation. The Bible's unique in its teachings. It has prophecy and and even sets the stage for its own prophetic writings by saying, by the way, the only way that you're allowed to trust prophecy is if it's true 100% of the time. Like the Bible sets its own standard for judgment and then stands up to them. None of those things have ever been disproved. That's remarkable. Um, history, the historical writings in the Bible have never been disproven, ever, by any history anywhere. In fact, um, even the Table of Nations alone stands as one of the greatest examples of historical writing still leaned on by secular historians today all over the world. The Bible has never been disproved historically. Character. The Bible deals frankly with the people in its writings, exposing even the negative things about them, which if you were trying to expose someone to a religion that you were making up, you wouldn't make its leaders look unfollowable the way the Bible actually does. Um, Influences on literature. Listen to this. Uh, Cleland B. McAfee writes this. If every Bible in any considerable city was destroyed... The Bible could be be restored in all of its parts simply from quotations on the shelves of our city public libraries. There are words covering almost all the great literary writers devoted, especially to showing how much the Bible has influenced them. In other words, he's saying this, the influence of the Bible has gone into so many other areas that even if we didn't have the Bible, we could build the Bible just on the things that other people who aren't even promoting the Bible have written. That's how influential it has become. And its influence on civilization, I love this quote, Norman Geisler says this, the influence of the Bible and its teaching in the Western world is clear for all who study history. And the influential role of the West on the course of the world events is equally clear. Civilization has been influenced more by the Judeo-Christian scriptures than any other book or series of books in the world. Indeed, no great moral or religious work in the world exceeds the depth of morality in the principles of Christian love. And none has a more lofty spiritual concept than the biblical view of God. The Bible presents the highest, de- highest ideals known to men, ideals that have molded civilization throughout history. It's an incredible book. And then also this, number six, the Bible is unique in its makeup. And 
just for the sake of time, we don't have time to go into this, but the criteria for the New Testament and Old Testament canon. In other words, the criteria that was used to determine, is this the actual word of God that belongs in the Bible or not? The standards were almost impossibly high. I mean, if, if you were making up a religion, you would just, oh, that sounds good, throw that in there. And that is not what happened. The scriptures themselves set a standard that was so impossibly high that it's a miracle that anything made it in at all. But yet that's what the Bible actually is. It's a, a miracle. There, but listen, there is an endless amount of empirical evidence. I'm, I'm having to skip a ton of stuff just because time, because I feel like I just started at 7.30 and I'm like halfway through my notes. So we have to hurry. There is an endless list of empirical data that says that the book that we have in our hand is trustworthy, it is accurate, it is the one that was written down back then is the same one that we're reading right now. There is a ton of empirical evidence, and you can go find that anywhere. You, it, it is provable. But here's the problem. That never fixes the critic. And the reason is, like, the issue is an issue of mastery. Now, for us, we can hear these things, and it can bolster our confidence in the Word of God. Like, we can hear those things and go, yeah, I'm, when I have moments of doubt, which anyone wrestles with at times, I can trust this. This is true. But for the people who are arguing against the Bible's validity, I've met nobody that has been argued into the kingdom of God ever. Nobody. I don't know a soul that read or heard all of those kind of, now, now maybe there's some, I'm not trying to paint with too broad of a brush here, but I don't know anyone that got argued into the kingdom. In our day and age with the Facebook arguments and the polarization we have now, I think it's probably more unlikely now than it's ever been before that you could take any of that stuff that I just did, put it in front of somebody and they'll go, my gosh, you're right. Oh, worship, right? I don't think that's gonna happen. Very few people that are doing that. And here's why. Because no one's neutral. Like no one argues from a place of neutrality where we can just easily be tipped over. People by default, the Bible itself actually says are what? Enemies of God. Like you're starting from the negative, from a place that a, a, a apologetic argument is not going to be enough to push you over to the other side. Ephesians 2 says that we are by nature objects of God's wrath. Romans says we are enemies of God. And Romans also says that no one's even seeking God, that even in those arguments, they're not looking for that. And haven't you noticed that when people attack the scriptures? I've noticed very few people that are like, I want to believe it's true. I just can't find the facts. No, they're arguing from a different place. They're arguing from a place of antagonism against God. Which makes the Bible even more amazing, and here's why. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to men who are by nature opposed to him. Like, look, it's not our discovery. You guys realize that? The Bible is not, these are the things we've learned about God over the years. That's not what it is. It's God's self-revelation to people who, he's, who are against him. Just the grace in that alone is stunning. We are the recipients of revelation from God, even when our hearts are opposed to God. In his great love and in his great mercy, he's done this. He would be right to say not a word to us, judge us for our rebellion against him, wipe us off the face of the earth, and move on as if we never existed. He would be just in doing so. But the miracle of this book is that he didn't. 
that he loved us enough not to leave us in that situation, but to reveal himself to us, to reveal Jesus Christ to us, and then to reveal this incredible rescue plan that is the gospel, that he would come and save us. That's a miracle. See, the issue with the Bible is one of mastery. This is a quote, it's a little hard to follow, but it makes the point really well from Alice and Alice in Wonderland. It's, it's from, it, this is a quote from Lewis Carroll's story, Through the Looking Glass, and it says this, just track with me in this. This is uh, Alice in Wonderland talking with Humpty Dumpty. Since we're talking about those who might think the Bible is a fable, it's an appropriate, appropriate analogy. So look what it says here. To be sure I was, Humpty Dumpty said gaily as she turned it around for him, I thought it looked a little queer. As I was saying, that seems to be done right, though I haven't had time to look it over thoroughly just now. And that shows that there are 364 days when you might get unbirthday presents. Certainly, said Alice. And only one for birthday presents, you know. There's glory for you. So what they're saying is there's this argument about birthdays and non-birthdays. And they're like, seems unfair that there's 364 days in a year where you would get, if you will, unbirthday presents. And birthdays only come on one. But if we celebrated both, man, you'd get gifts on all of these days instead of this other one. That's what they're talking about. And so Alice says, certainly. And he says, you, and only one for birthday presents. You know, there's glory for you. And Alice says, I don't know what you mean by glory. What do you mean by glory? Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't, till I tell you. I mean, there's a nice knockdown argument for you. So what's Humpty Dumpty saying? Oh, I'm, you don't understand this, but there's a translation here. I'm going to interpret this for you, and look what he says. Glory doesn't mean a nice down argument, Alice objected. Humpty Dumpty says, when I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said, rather in a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean. Nothing more or less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master? That is all. So here's what's being said. Humpty Dumpty uses this word glory in a way that he wants to use it. And Alice goes, I've never heard that word used that way anymore. What are you talking about? And he says, no, it, I use, when I use words, they mean what I want them to mean. And Alice says, well, do you have the authority to make words say what you want them to mean? Who has that? And Humpty Dumpty says, his quote, the question is, which is to be mastered? That is all. Now, this was introduced to me in, in my hermeneutics class when I started studying uh, um, biblical theology at Western Seminary. And they used it using the words before where he talks about gaily and it talks about queer. And the example was, those are words that meant one thing when this was originally written, but now as years have gone on, those words can mean some very, very different things, words that can get you in trouble, right? And so he talked about what is meaning, where does meaning even come from? It comes from context, it comes from all these things, but then that story goes on and it reveals something really important. And the idea is this, who is the master over words? Who decides? The issue of the Bible is one of mastery. There are those who will choose to master over the words and go, that's not true. I decided so. I reject that as truth. And they're making an authoritative decision regarding the Bible. But there are others of which I hope you are, of which we as a church have decided, that go, no, 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 no. The goal is to be mastered by the word of God, not to master the word of God. Like, I was warned on that on day one in seminary. They told us, they're like, listen, you're embarking right now on your master's degree in biblical studies. 
but that's a weird thing to actually call it. Because the goal is not that you would become a master of the Bible. The goal is that the Bible would master you. And if you choose to reject the Bible, you're choosing to master. You're, you're choosing your own God, your own way of living, and you're rejecting the words that are there. And listen, apologetic arguments don't fix that. That's not how you argue through those things. So then, Jeff, what do we do with it? Well, here's where we start. We always start with Jesus. And here, here's what I mean by this. The gospel calls Jesus the word who became flesh. Now, remember Peter's example of what the Bible actually was? What did he say? He said, the scriptures came about when God spoke to men. When the word of God flowed through the person of man, there's this junction that happens between man and between God, and God breathes these words out through those who, he, who he's inspiring. So as you read, you see the personality of different writers, but as they're writing, the words inspired and spoken through by God. And that's kind of fitting because in the book of John, it says that Jesus is the Word of God. He's the living embodiment. He is the Word, the Scriptures say. And what, what is Jesus? He is fully God and what? Fully man. So it makes sense to us that the Word would have that sort of synergy together with it between man and God's inspiration. So we start with Jesus at the very beginning. Because here's the thing. You ever thought about this? Like, if you're talking about accuracy of the Bible, we don't know how accurate the stories of Abraham are. Now, don't freak out on me. You're like, did Pastor Jeff just say we can't trust the stories of Abraham? That is not what I'm saying. They are totally trustworthy. But, but do me a favor. Go somewhere and prove to me with empirical evidence that Moses actually took his son and put him on an altar the way that the Bible tells him. You can't do that. Those are stories that were shared. Those are stories that were told. You can't do that. And you're like, well, then what do we do? You just ruined my foundation. We just did that with the devotions with my kids last night. What am I going to do now? You go to Jesus because here's the thing. Jesus is empirically proven. When the stories of Jesus happen, they happen in a historical context where you can find the history of all of these things. Almost no one argues that Jesus didn't exist. And Jesus makes claims, the biggest of which, to be God himself. And so that's where you start. If the Gospels are accurate, everything else falls into place because Jesus taught those stories. Jesus confirmed those stories. Somewhere in the Gospel writings, in the teachings of Jesus, is a nod of approval towards the truth of all of the different things that were written in the old Scriptures. So you don't have to go through all the individual ones. All of you who are about to go off to college, you're going to hear professors pick apart things like, oh, the Bible says this about slavery. Oh, the Bible says this. You don't have to go there. You only need to go to the Gospels because here's the truth. If what Jesus said about himself is true, then we have to deal with the rest of the other things there because he made the authority claim. But if, if, but if it's not true, then who cares? The rest of it doesn't matter. We are wasting our time because the central part of all Scripture, in fact, the central story of all Scripture is the story of Jesus Christ as the living embodiment, as God himself who came to save the world. So if that part's not true, we don't care about Abraham. Who gives a rip about Joshua? None of those things matter if Jesus isn't God. But if he's God, all of it matters, and you dare not mess with any of it. One of our core values here as a church is, man, there's things that we're going to come across in Scripture that we might not like, but we are not Lord, He is. And so because the claims of Jesus are true, 
because he rose from the dead to prove who he claimed he is, we have to hold to these things. And God forbid we go into heaven one day and go, no, I know your Lord, I know your master. We just figured we'd change some of your stuff. But here's the deal too. One last thing, and I gotta be done. We also need to understand that those who don't believe the Bible, like I said before, they need much, much more than intellectual arguments. And, and I'll just close it by saying this. Jonathan Edwards, who's a great, great, great writer, um, great theologian, he actually was involved in a lot of stuff where he was defending the Bible and trying to support and pr- against attacks, promote the trustworthiness and the believability of Scripture. But even as he was defending the Bible as an apologist, he always did it a little bit open-handedly. And the reason was he said, Just apologetic arguments aren't enough. Here's what he said. He said, our faith is hardly irrational, and Christians have solid, reasonable, historical reasons to believe the Bible is God's authoritative and perfect revelation. But he said, the truth is this, though. As Christians, we believe this not because of an apologetic argument. We believe this because, and this is how Jonathan Edwards put it, he said, we who have become believers have been given a new sense. And here's what he meant. He was saying, it's like we, once we become believers, we can taste something that we couldn't taste before. And you're trying to explain that taste to someone else, and it's difficult because how do you explain a taste that someone's in a place that they're not fully able to taste? He said, you need more than an empirical argument for those things. And so he argued for three things that people who don't know Jesus need. And these are things that I hope our church can embrace and be able to model out there. He said, there is an intellectual aspect, number one. We do need to know that it's true. And there is historical, empirical evidence and all those things. That's good to know and it's good, but there's more than that. And the second one, he said, there needs to be a social aspect. And this is what he meant. We need to see these things lived out in the lives of people that we trust, look up to, and admire. In other words, this. Salvation doesn't typically come through a lecture. It tends to come through relationships. As you love and follow Jesus in every area of your life and people who know you and trust you see these things playing out in their life and they trust you too so that as you give testimony or even as you share the empirical evidence and the intellectual argument, they might actually listen to you as someone that they trust. And then the third one is this. He said, there needs to be a personal aspect. There needs to be a genuine understanding of our own weakness and our need for salvation. There needs to be a genuine understanding that we are not God and there has to be something else out there and that's where the gospel comes in. And then more than anything, I'm I'm having to abbreviate so fast just because of time, but let me say this too. I don't want to make this, this is the easy part. When you're defending the Bible, you can make it a sermon that gives us all ammunition to go out there and kind of battle the unbelievers that are attacking. But here's the truth, the Bible's for Christians, and you're like, what, what do you mean by that? I mean, the Bible is for Christians. Here, here's what we're doing here. We're, we're making the claim that every single thing that's said in this Bible is trustworthy for reproof and correction and doctrine, and that everything said here should lord over our lives and determine who we are, who we're becoming, and who we're going to be. That's a huge deal. I'm asking you to put your entire life on the balance of this book. That's scary. To give up all decision-making, all authority, all judgment, and say whatever he says I'll do? It would be scary if we didn't know him, not just as God, but as Father. So here's your shameless Father's Day tie-in, guys. He's not just the God who spoke everything into existence. 
He's the father. And think about this. What does a good father do? It's Father's Day. We honor dads. We're going to clap for them at the end and all that kind of stuff. But, but listen, a good dad pays the price and gives the sacrifice that's necessary to provide for his family a home. He'll go to work and do the hard work even when it's difficult because he knows he has a responsibility and he loves the people that are under him and he wants to provide a home. He wants to provide provision. He, he wants to protect when a danger comes. Like that's what a good father does. And in this book, we have the story of the good father who paid the price that we could become children in his household, that's preparing the place for us, that's brought his family together. He says, here's where we get provision, here's where we get protections, here's what these things. So at its core, the Bible is a call to trust the words of your father. And so Heritage, I want to call you to that. Even in the things that we don't like, even in the things that we don't want to do, even in stuff that would be culturally easier to stand on out there if we got rid of a few things here and there. Trust the words of your Father. Trust what your Father's calling you to do. Trust the good news of your Father in what He's doing for you even now. And genuinely build your life on the miracle that is this book, knowing that His word is trustworthy. His word is profitable. His word will not return void. He's not making things up and he's not setting you up for difficulties or any of those things. He's calling you to holiness. He's calling you to joy. He's calling you to hope. He's calling you a son. He's calling you a daughter. Think of all the things that the Bible says about those who have become Christian. And if you're here and you're not a Christian today, whether you've been playing church forever or, or whether this is your first time, you need to know that this Bible is true, and people outside this, the church are going to attack the Bible as being this control mechanism who wants to rob you of all your joy and control you because the church needs money or the church wants power or whatever the case may be. But I'm here to tell you, just read this book, and you will learn the story of a loving God who had every right because of our sin and our rebellion to judge us and wipe us off the face of the earth, and yet he's so good and he's so gracious that he sent his son Jesus Christ, God in the flesh himself, to go through all the difficulties of life that you and I have gone through. The Bible says he was tempted in every way like we were. He's been through it all. Whatever you're dealing with, he's been through it all. Whatever you're affected by, he's been through it all. He gets it and yet was without sin. Lived perfectly in a way we could never do, but then went to the cross where our sin where our shame, where our rebellion was placed upon his shoulders and he paid the price for our sin that we might now, by faith, putting our faith in him and believing in him as Lord and believing in his act in the scriptures, we can become sons and daughters of God. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't make us any better than anyone else. It doesn't make us perfect or holy more than anyone else. It doesn't do any of those kinds of things. It just makes us his. It makes us different than everyone else. And he's constantly still today calling people to him, calling people through his word and hopefully through the witness of Christians that are around you. So, so you this morning, I want to call you, man, come to your father. It'd be the best thing you could ever do on Father's Day is to come to Jesus and be adopted into the family of God. 
So right now we're going to move into a time of just reflection over these things. And we do this in three different ways. Some of us, we have business to do with God. Some of you, maybe, maybe you've been holding out, pushing back against God's word on things he's calling you to do. And you need to just submit to those things and, and let him be Lord and bow before him and repent. And some of you, maybe you've been doubting God's word and you need to pray and talk to him and do some business, whatever that might be, and do some business with God. And like I said, some of you, you need to come to Jesus for the very first time. I'll be down here. We have some other elders over there, man. Come pray with us. Let's do some business with God this morning. Others will be worshiping. We'll be standing with our hands lifted to the heavens, singing to our God, singing to our Father out of joy because we know the, what this book says he has done for us and his great love for us. So we respond in worship because we're just glorifying him in the same way that you would honor your own father this morning by getting up and the kids run in the room and go, happy Father's Day. That's what we do in worship. We're honoring our God and claiming who he is. And we also give. There's opportunity for those who want to partner with us in the mission of spreading the gospel throughout the valley and, and honoring God in that way. There's a place for us to be able to give back out of our finances and things to God. It's an act of proclaiming trust in him, but also because we believe strongly in the mission of carrying this gospel out to the rest of the world. So whatever area you're in, however you're responding, I want to encourage you, take these next five, ten minutes. Don't, I mean, if you have to leave, that's fine. We're not going to judge you. You're not going to get struck by a lightning bolt when you walk out, but like, be with God worship God, respond to God, and let's spend some time with the Heavenly Father who went through so much, who sent his son to go through so much that he might be with us. Amen, church? Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you, Lord. We thank you for the truth of your word, that it is trustworthy, it is rock solid, and it is true, and that is really good news for us because your word says that you are our salvation, you are our king, you are our father, you are our champion, and you are our friend. So as we worship you right now, Lord, we do so out of a response to those truths, our heart being moved by your goodness and your grace. So we pray, Lord, may you, whether it's receiving offerings or receiving people or just receiving our praise, may you be honored, may you be esteemed on this Father's Day as the good, good Father and King of our lives. In Jesus' name, let's worship